Good morning, church. Great to see you. Welcome. So glad you're here. My name is Greg Paris. We uh, are enjoying a beautiful morning. Hope you're uh, doing okay. You know, this time change thing is a little anxiety producing, isn't it? Uh, especially when we lose an hour. There, you know, there is some science uh, behind it that uh, certain categories of physical dysfunction, you know, heart attacks go up and anxiety attacks go up and and all kinds of issues when you lose an hour. And it's not just the hour, of course, but it's the anxiety around it. You know, you're concerned about oversleeping or whatever. In the fall, when we gain the hour back, all those numbers go down from the averages. And people are a little more chilled out around it. So this is the, uh, the hardest part of the change each year. Uh, so thank you for being here. Thank you for making it. You're here at the right time in the right place. So welcome. We are concluding the series we began some weeks ago now called God's at War. What we've learned is that when our affections or our focus gets away from God as a priority and gets on other things or other people, the Bible describes this going awry as idolatry so that a thing or a person can become an idol to us, displacing the important role that God has in our lives. And we've talked about some of these idols in the last several weeks. We've talked about pleasure and about romance and about money and about success and about power and those kinds of things that are very common to the human experience that we, that we tend to stumble over and get distracted by. Today, I want to conclude this series by talking about the God of me, the God of me. <laughs> in other words, all of us are tempted to worship ourselves, to prefer ourselves, to put ourselves before anything else. All of us have to struggle with this all the time. And so hopefully we can gain some insight into this important question and learn from the text today. We've chosen from our, from our text today from Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel chapter four. And let me just give you a, a little context here before I read these first three verses of this chapter. The person who has written these these words in the fourth chapter of Daniel is not Daniel in this case, but it's rather the king of Babylon who was the, the supreme ruler of the most powerful nation in the world at the time that had overcome Israel. And now Daniel and all of the other Jews had been taken into captivity into subservience in the Babylonian kingdom. The king of that kingdom was Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was a bad dude. He was vile. He was brutal. He was, um, he was pagan. He, he, he worshiped the God of me. He was all about Nebuchadnezzar. And what we find here in the first few verses of Daniel chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar exalting the virtues of God. Totally out of character. Totally out of his personality. Total, totally out of his prior worldview as a selfish person, a, a, per, a, a person worship, worshiping himself, the God of me. And so what we see here is, is the exaltation of Almighty God. So we ask the question, how did Nebuchadnezzar come to a place where he could worship God so generously and so freely? What's happening here in, in Daniel 4 is called reverse chronology. We see this in movies, sometimes in novels, where the opening scene of the movie, for example, is the end of the story. And it may be dramatic or outrageous or exceptional. And you're looking at this scene 
which is actually the conclusion of the story. And you wonder how in the world did those characters get to that place? And then the movie shows you the end and then goes back to the beginning and the movie tells the story. So reverse chronology, first things, last things first, and then, go, and then they work their way up. That's what happens in the fourth chapter of Daniel. You see the end result of Nebuchadnezzar's life-altering change from a selfish person to a person who worships God. And the rest of the chapter is the description of how that happened. That's what we want to kind of lean into today as we self-evaluate and ask important questions about whether or not we have succumbed to the God of me. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Daniel chapter 4. I'm going to read the first three verses. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word. Thank you for doing that as you're able. And here's King Nebuchadnezzar now. He was a rascal, but listen to him now. To the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. This lofty uh, song of worship, really, coming from this king. May God give us insight and wisdom into how it came to be. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Now, I have one statement at the beginning of this message, which really summarizes the whole message. So if you're planning to catch up on your hour of missed sleep uh, during this sermon time, <laughs> you're welcome to do that. Just hear me, hear the first sentence, hear the first line. And then once you hear that, you've pretty much got the gist of it. And you can check out after that. Someone in between services suggested that I should sell my sermons uh, as, as white noise to help people fall asleep at night. And I, I said, that's, that's a good idea. I just call it white preacher noise. And maybe I could sell you, you know, give you the app for free and then 99 cents a month, you know, for the service. And all I do, all you do is turn me on, listen to me preach, you go right to sleep. And so... It's an idea, you know, we could make some money in retirement, you know, doing that, funding that maybe. I'm serious, because people, people sleep all the time. The way I rationalize this is that sometimes taking a nap is the most spiritual thing you can do. That's true. So when you doze off when I'm preaching, I just assume you're connecting with God in a very meaningful way and <laughs> don't fuss about it at all, no problem. All right, so here's the statement. Are you ready? Here's the line that I need you to, need you to capture. So stay, stay attentive now for five seconds. The foundation of all reality, foundation of all reality is that there is one God in the heavens and you are not him. This is, this is the basis of all reality, all truth in the world. It's the foundation of it. This is where you stand. Foundation of reality is that there is one God. He is great. He is creator God. He is Lord over all. There is one God, and you are not him. Now, this reality leaves us with a choice because while we can rationalize and even believe that there is one true God, he's great. He's a great God. He's, he's worthy, of our, of our, worth, worthy of our worship and worthy of our esteem. There is one true God. And on the other hand, we tend to want to be God. All of us are tempted this way. Don't, don't get all spiritual and pious with it. Don't get religious 
on me right now because we all, sometimes we slide ourselves onto the throne of the center of our lives just so easily. We don't even notice it happened. When did that happen? I didn't even know that happened. And, we, and we, so we said, no, no, Jesus has to be there, not me, not someone else, not anything else. We want Jesus at the center of our lives. And so every one of us on a daily basis have to stop and choose which God we're gonna serve. Are we gonna serve Almighty God or are we gonna serve the God of me? Adam and Eve first experienced this in the Garden of Eden. They were tempted with this whole idea, this whole notion. Genesis 3, 5, it simply says, this is the devil tempting Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, your eyes will be open. If you just disobey God in this one category, partake of this fruit, I know he told you not to, but listen, if you do it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. There it is. There it is. There's the offer. There's the temptation. And all of us find that appealing. Yeah, the God of me. You know, if I was running this universe, if I was running this show, yeah. And it's appealing to us, of course. Now, there are symptoms when we engage the God of me. Let me just rehearse a couple of those. One is arrogance. It's always right. I, I'm never wrong. I'm God, so I'm always right. My way is the best way. The God of me won't listen to the wisdom of others. Now, here's, a, here's some questions. Let me ask you this question. See if, see if you resonate with this. Listen to it. When was the last time you made one of these statements? Last time you made one of these statements. I don't know where Beth was. She, she was here. I've been, I've been saying these lines to her all weekend. So I'll just pretend I'm, I'm saying them to her. It's good therapy for me. Here are the statements. I was wrong. You were right. I should have listened to you. I like your idea better. When's the last time you said those words? I was wrong. You were right. I should have listened to you. Your idea was better. If the God of me is resident in your life, then you'll have to be arrogant and rarely say those things. Another symptom is insecurity. Think about that. The God of me is consumed with what others think, and so I'm terrified of something new or attempting something and then failing. That's just so overwhelming to me. You can't help but be self-conscious because you're God and it's all about you. And so insecurity can be a symptom. Another is defensiveness. I wonder, have you ever found yourself taking the slightest suggestion, the blandest criticism as a personal attack? Yeah. So that you you come to the place where... uh, you realize that, well, if I'm God, I have to be perfect and no one else could possibly be in a position, if I'm perfect, for them to criticize me. So I get defensive about anybody who says anything. Another symptom is loneliness because you can't handle equals. You can't handle, you can't handle those in authority. You can't submit to anyone because you're in charge. You're God. You need people to constantly uh, reaffirm that, 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 you're, that you're the center of all of it. And so loneliness can occur. Social media doesn't help us with the God of me, not, not even a little bit. doesn't matter what platform you create an account on. It's all about you, your photos, your thoughts, your content. You know, we've talked about this before that, that people want to present the best version of themselves online. We project on our online profiles the life we want, not the life that actually is. I found this statistic at doing this preparation that, that Google Photos, when they first introduced Google Photos, 
they reported, listen to this number, that in the first year of Google Photos, 24 billion people, 24 billion times, people uploaded selfies to Google Photos. <laughs> 24 billion. Now listen, some of you must have really been uploading selfies because I haven't uploaded one. I, so I haven't met my quota at all. And that's just on one platform, 24 billion. So you can imagine the, the, the big numbers. So all of that to say that it's easy to slip into this, this attitude that suggests that I'm the center of things, the God of me. Now in Daniel chapter four, again, we have this pagan king. He is, he is categorically evil. He, he is a dictator. He is this monarch. In Jeremiah chapter 29, there's, a, there's an explanation of one of the kings that he overthrew and how he murdered and butchered the family of this king and then killed, killed the king. I mean, the description of it is so barbaric that you can't even comprehend it. So this is a bad guy and he's all about himself and he's focused only on himself. And yet his power and cruelty with no equal, we find him saying these amazing things in Daniel chapter one, which we've just read. To the peoples and nations of, of every language, the whole world, may you prosper. It's my pleasure to tell you about these miraculous signs and wonders. And he goes on to say about God, he, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonder. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Essentially, Nebuchadnezzar writes this worship song and it's so out of character that it just blows people's minds. I mean, it, it would be like Howard Stern, you know, turning on the radio to Howard Stern and listening to Howard reading the 150th Psalm. And let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. It would just go... Howard, is that you? Or Bill Maher, you know, who's an avowed atheist who goes on TV sometime and goes, you know, I've changed my ways. I've decided to believe in the one true God and I believe he's an awesome God. We'd go, what's, what's Bill been taking? What's he been eating? What's wrong with Bill? It would, be, it would just be shocking to us. And so we find King Nebuchadnezzar totally out of character extolling the virtues of God, worshiping God in these exalted terms. So let's back up and ask the question, what happened? What happened to this guy who, who goes from being the ultimate self-worshipper to worshiping the one true God? Here's what we know. The rest of chapter four tells us. In verse four, I and Nebuchadnezzar was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Can you feel that? Why, why wouldn't he be? He's the king of the world. He's, got, he, he's in charge of everything. He's the biggest, baddest dude in the world. I'm contented and prosperous. That's his self-description. And then he said, I had a dream that made me afraid. And as I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So what is this dream? He has a dream of this massive tree. He sees this tree that's limbs and branches branch out so far that everybody in the world can see it. It's, it's, so it's this huge and it's very fruitful, laden with fruit. Animals are coming under to feed. Birds are resting in the branches of this tree and it's magnificent. And then he says, in the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked and therefore before me was a messenger. So in his dream, he sees an angel, a holy one he describes coming down from the heavens. And he called in a loud voice and this is what the angel said, cut down the tree. Trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it, the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots 
bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Cut down the tree, leave the stump. Then it transitions away from the tree and he writes, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal until seven times pass by me before him. So he gets this vision, this dream, and it's very elaborate, it's very dramatic, and it troubles him. He calls all of his wise guys, the magicians, the, the, the soothsayers in his kingdom, interpret this dream, they can't do it. Well, he remembers that there's a guy in his service, he's, he's, a, he's a bond servant because he's in exile from, from Judah, and here's Daniel. And Daniel summoned by Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar tells him his dream, can you interpret this dream? Daniel goes away, prays about this, and God gives him the interpretation. He goes back to Nebuchadnezzar. He said, I know what the dream means. Nebuchadnezzar said, tell me. Daniel said, are you sure you want to hear it? He said, I want to know. And so Daniel tells him the dream. Daniel said, the interpretation of the dream is, oh, great king Nebuchadnezzar, you are the tree. You are the tree. And God is going to cut you down cut you down to size. You're so full of yourself, God has to humble you. And he said, not only that, but you're going you're gonna to be, be taken away from your sanity, from your connection to reality, and you're going to live like a beast out on the fields for seven years. Wow. Wow. He also adds, he also adds that, it, that if, if you... If you will humble yourself, maybe God will save you. But he says, otherwise, this is what's going to become of you. It's an amazing thing. Now, let's hit pause on, this, on, the, on the story right now, and let's ask the question uh, by way of application to our own lives. On your outline, you'll see some, some fill in the blanks. And let's ask some questions. First one is this. What motivates you? What motivates you in life, just in general? Well, I mean, what gets you going? What, what keeps you moving forward? What's your motivation? Now, what we know about King Nebuchadnezzar, and you want to write this down because it's important to contrast this. For Nebuchadnezzar, his motivation was to impress others. Impress others. We know that because in chapter 3 of Daniel, we read that Nebuchadnezzar has an an image of himself that is created, a gold inlaid image of, of King Nebuchadnezzar, it's 90 feet tall. This isn't a life-size statue out in front of the, the stadium. This is a 90 foot tall image, nine feet wide. The day that he reveals this, this image of himself, he calls together the whole kingdom, all the musicians, the orchestra, and the deal was as soon as the music starts playing, everyone in the kingdom has to bow down to this idol, this image of King Nebuchadnezzar with their face on the dirt to worship him. And anybody who doesn't play along is going to be put to death. Apparently he had this big pit. He fired it up, this fiery furnace. And anybody who doesn't bow down to his image, because he's all about impressing others, he's going to throw them in this fire and kill them. And so the first day this idol is revealed this 90-foot-tall statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, the music starts, everybody in the kingdom is face down in the dirt. 
except three guys. You remember the story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three Hebrews, they say to each other, look, we don't care how big, you know, Nebuchadnezzar builds his idol to himself. We're not serving him. We worship the one true God and we'll not move off of that. And folks said to the guys, listen, you don't understand. If you don't bow down, we're gonna, they're gonna, he's gonna throw you in that fiery furnace, that pit. And they said, okay. So essentially, this is another sermon. This will really preach. And it, but it works into idolatry, doesn't it? They say, they say to Nebuchadnezzar, they look Nebuchadnezzar right in the eye and said, look, we may burn. That may be true. You have the power to kill us, but we will not bow. <laughs> not to you, not to any man, not to any idol. We serve the one true God and we will bow to him only. Yes, can you, you feel that, right? So, so here's the... Here's this moment, and of course, you, you remember the story, they threw him in this fire, they stoked it up really hot, threw him in, God delivers them, freaked everybody out. It's quite a moment. The point I wanna make is this motivation to impress others. Then the second question, let me ask, not only ask about Nebuchadnezzar, but ask about your own life. What is your standard for success? We talked about this a little bit last week, but what is your standard? How would you define success? Nebuchadnezzar would define it as personal gain. The more stuff, the more status, the more accolade comes to me, I consider that success. One way that we can measure his success was the palace that he had built for himself. It's 350 yards long, 350 yards long. If a personality, uh, a professional athlete, Hollywood personality or something builds a mansion, you know, in California in the Malibu Hills or something, it's 10,000 square feet or or 12,000 square feet, you know, like the size of this room. Then you go, well, that's a pretty big house. You know, that's a lot of elbow room. Listen to Nebuchadnezzar's house, 630,000 square feet. <laughs> Visualize that. All of the buildings that we have under roof on our campus here at Union Chapel, times seven. That's how big his house was. So he's got a little room to move around. But this is all about personal gain. He wants the biggest, he wants the best. That's his deal. Here's question number three. What's your source of power? You know, where do you go for help? When you need strength, where do you find it? Well, for Nebuchadnezzar, it was self-empowerment. Self-empowerment, write that down. Verse 28, though, of Daniel 4 says, he looks at all of his success and concludes that it was accomplished by his mighty power. Really, dude? Seriously. This guy's cruising, isn't he? He's cruising for trouble. You, gotta, you can feel it coming. Question number four, what is the purpose of your life? It's a great question, isn't it? What is your purpose? You need to think about that. Why are you here? What's, your, what's the point? What's the purpose of your life? For Nebuchadnezzar, it was personal happiness. Everything he did was motivated by the desire to be happy and satisfied. Now, here's what we, here's what we discover. Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar and he, and he interprets a dream and then he says, therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right. Humble yourself. Uh, renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Operate with some humility, with some empathy. Help people around you in need. May it be that then your prosperity will continue. So he said, he said, to King Nebuchadnezzar, if, if you'll humble yourself, care for people who are oppressed, 
Maybe God will cut you some slack, but if not, listen. Now, verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar and 12 months later, so he got fair warning, got fair warning. And for 12 months, he's disregarding the warning. And so now this is what happens. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He's walking one night on the roof of his palace and he suddenly loses his mind immediately. He's driven away from people, ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails became like the claws of a bird. I mean, try to picture this. For seven years, I mean, he's lost his mind. There is no facility to send someone like this out of touch with reality. There's, 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 no, there's no safety net for folks back in the day. They just turned him out because he's not, he's not human anymore. He's lost everything. He's lost, he's lost his sense of humanity. So he's out there. He lives like an animal. His hair begins to all matted and grow seven years. Never bathes his fingernails, his toenails. I mean, he's like a wolf man. He's just out there. He's out of touch with reality, completely devoid of any human dignity. It's, a, it's an astonishing thing. Let me, uh, let me show you a quote from Jeremiah's prophecy. This is in chapter two of Jeremiah. I'll put this on the screen for you. This is, a, this is an important reference. He says, therefore I bring charges against you, declares the Lord. My people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. See, here's the contrast. Glorious God, worthless idols. Happiness, money, success, pleasure, worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. Now note them, two sins. Number one, they have forsaken me. And then he uses this metaphor, the spring of living water. Isn't that beautiful? God says, look, I'm the spring of life. I'm the spring of living water. I'm your source. I'm the, I'm the one who, who, who refreshes you and sustains you and keeps you and, and gives you life. You've exchanged, you've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and you've dug your own cisterns. In other words, you've, you've replaced me with little gods, lesser gods, inept gods, poor counterfeit gods. And they're like your cisterns that you dig. You think you're gonna collect all the water you need, but your cisterns leak and, and the water becomes stagnant and it, and it doesn't give you life. And so you've exchanged the spring of living water for your nasty cisterns. It's, it's a real contrast there, isn't it? But this is what we do. This is the great challenge before us. This is, this is, this is a common malady in humanity. We, instead of looking to God as our source of comfort, for example, what do we do? We run to food, mindless entertainment for comfort. What is that about? You know, we have this, uh, this coronavirus that's threatening the world right now, and, and we need to talk about that maybe, and we're going to do that in, in the next couple of weeks and just, just try to get perspective on all of it. And it's very serious, and we need to take it seriously. But here's something that you don't hear talked about at all. Did you know that there are 80 million Americans who are pre-diabetic? 80 million. 25 to 30 million Americans are pre-diabetic and diabetic, type 2 diabetes, and don't even know it. Don't even know it. Their blood sugar numbers are running rampant and, and it's affecting their health. People are dying. This is pandemic. This is pandemic. 
People dying just from eating the wrong food at the wrong time in the wrong quantities and not taking care of their physical health. Why don't we make God the source of our comfort instead of things like food and entertainment? Well, rather than looking to God as the source of our significance, what do we do? We have idols for that. We have our careers. We have our accomplishments. We have our resumes. We talked about the rich young ruler last week. Instead of looking to God as our source of security, so many of us look to money and our investments and the portfolio. Listen, it's a dangerous business. There's everything right about being prudent, about having a biblical vision for being good stewards of the resources God gives us. Accumulating wealth is actually a good thing. God is the one who gives people the power to get wealth. We, we understand that, that, that there's direction for this and opportunity in it. But listen, when we see money as our source, this is what Jesus warned us about. He said, when money becomes your lover, all kinds of evil happens then. Instead of making God the source of our joy, we look to other relationships for this. We look to our spouse and we say to our spouse, you have to meet all of the essential needs of my life, emotional needs, relational needs in my life. And it's unfair, it's unrealistic, it's a bad expectation because no one can meet all the needs of your life. Only God can meet those needs. And we place too high of expectations. Sometimes we look to children to be our source of happiness, joy, and fulfillment. And they can't do it for us either. As a person in pastoral ministry for decades, I've, I've watched this happen so many times. People just go from relationship to relationship to relationship, trying to find joy, happiness in their life, fulfillment in their life. When all the while they just need, they need to stop and turn their eyes upon Jesus. Find in him their joy. Instead of looking to God as our source of hope, people in today's culture look to politicians, look to government, look, look to legislation to give them a hopeful future. We're insane. We're we've gone crazy around this subject right now, thinking that the future is dependent on, on this political system or this political philosophy. And if we don't get it right, then we're all doomed. Wait a minute. God never said that he's ordained government to take care of you, to be your hopeful future. God alone can be that as our source of hope. There's all kinds of opportunity for amens in this part. <laughs> and why not look to God as our source of truth? This may be the most important issue that it confronts all of us. Look to God as our source of truth. Where do we go instead? We go to popular opinion. We go to academic consensus. We go to modern trending. We, we go to what's popular now. It's a, it's a crazy time in the world. So we have, we have all kinds of pushback, pushback, pushback about freedom of expression and freedom of speech and, and freedom, freedom of lifestyle and all kinds of issues that, that seem to be a value at the core of who we are as a civilization. But at the ultimate, the quintessential foundation of the whole conversation is about truth. It's about truth. And as it turns out, God has offered us truth that is absolute and unchanging because God Almighty has revealed himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. 
You don't have to wonder, well, where is God? What does God look like? How does God, what does God think about this? Where, where does God care about this? It's an easy answer. Just look at Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So as it turns out, God has revealed himself through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And he's revealed himself further in his word. And so we have truth. And the great debate that, that, will, that will be the d- debate that is settled once and for all uh, in history will be the debate around essential truth. What is truth? Because what's true is true. Can't change it. Can't change it with what you feel. You can't change it with popular opinion. Can't change it with, with your emotion. You can't change it. Truth is what it is. Truth. Let me just tell you, I try to live my life based on this. What is the truth? What is the truth? And I hope that I see God as my source of truth. Now, these things, some of these things are not bad in and of themselves, of course, but they can become idols and broken down cisterns when it replaces the spring of living water. Are you following? I know you're getting this. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 34, it says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, listen to what he did. Now, watch this now. This is where it all turns for him. This is where it flips. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. I raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Can I just give you some pastoral advice right now? I don't know, I don't know your story. I don't know, you, I don't know your circumstances. I don't know what part of your, the journey you're on. I don't know how deep and dark and, and, and trauma-filled, crisis-filled, your journey may be, might be right now, but I can tell you this, the first and most important step you take, no matter where you are in your journey of life, is to turn your eyes toward heaven. Because when you turn your eyes toward heaven, sanity will return to you. Clarity will come to you. You may be confused and, and disrupted and uncertain and lacking hope and lacking light. But if you will turn your eyes toward heaven, you'll begin to see things clearly again. And God will take you step by step into a hopeful future. You can do that as an individual. Now think about this. Turn your eyes toward heaven. Think about our community. If Muncie, Delaware County would turn our eyes toward heaven, sanity would return. If our country would stop and turn our eyes toward heaven, sanity would come back. If our world would just suddenly stop and turn our eyes toward heaven, sanity and peace and the spring of living water would come to our aid. Yeah, yeah. And so here we find in this snapshot in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar, and sanity was restored, and he said, then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does what he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. This man who thought he was God was made a beast and then eventually realizes he's just a man. Now, let me tell you something about humility. Skip down to verse 37. This is what he's learned. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right. All his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. 
Now you think he's got a witness on this one? Think he's got a story to tell about humility? The great and mighty God is able to humble those. And he, 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 he has authority to say, God can do it. Let me tell you something about humility. If you decide to follow Jesus, you decide to make Jesus the center of your life, to make God the focus of your worship, you decide to be a follower of Jesus, let me tell you what will happen. God's primary mission, his primary objective in your life ultimately and finally is to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. God is committed to, he is determined to shape us into the image of Christ. That's his deal. And that's his mission. Here's what we know. There's a lot about us that isn't a lot about Jesus. And so what isn't like Jesus, God is going to work out of us. And what is about Jesus, he's going to work into us. Now, here's, here's what happens when it comes to humility. There's two ways to get humility in this life because Jesus was a humble fellow. And God wants us to be humble. He wants us to be in touch with this, just like Nebuchadnezzar got in touch with it. There are two ways to get humility in your life. Number one is, is, to, is to build it in yourself. Jesus said it this way, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he might exalt you at the proper time, casting all of your cares and anxieties upon him because he loves and cares for you. So you can humble yourself. That's one way to get to humility. You do that by focusing on Jesus and how great God is. And when we see how great God is, it'll give you perspective on how little and small you are. How great God is and how humble I am. So I just acknowledge me for who I am. I'm humble. And you, you assume that position. You can humble yourself. You can do that. And frankly, that's the way you want to do it. Because the other way, the only other way you can get humility in your life is to let God do it. And when God humbles you, can I get a witness in the room? And God's so determined to make us humble that if we don't get it right the first time he teaches us, he'll send us for remedial learning. And he'll send us back through the humble class and through the humble dessert and through the humble pie. God will make sure that we learn humility. I had a young pastor standing in this room with me not, not too long ago. And he was young and he's inexperienced and he's naive and he was here because he wanted to, you know, just learn as much as he could. And he's, you know, he's being wise that way. And we were standing in this room and it's beautiful. You know, isn't this nice? I mean, everything's so great. God's blessed us so much. So we have this wonderful environment and he was standing here and he was in awe because he pastors, you know, a little country thing with, you know, 18 people in it. And, you know, it's, it's different. And so he, he's just gawking, his mouth's open. He finally, he turned to me and with complete sincerity, he looked at me and he said to me, Pastor Greg, how do you stay humble? And I laughed. I laughed out loud. I found it funny. Because here's what I've discovered in my life. I've been doing this for 40 years. Here's what I know. I can either humble myself or God will do it for me. So I've learned to practice humbling myself. I've gotten pretty good at humbling myself. But when I'm not good at humbling myself, Jesus is just as happy as he can be. <laughs> Apparently, he enjoys it. Because it happens a lot. And he humbles me. Welcome to the world of humility. 
the God of me, seriously? I don't think so. That's not going to work. God's not going to have that. So now, how would Nebuchadnezzar answer the questions? Let's go back to the same questions. The last part of your outline, we'll go really quick now. Write these down because you need to take these home with you. I'll put these on the screen. Number one, what motivates you? Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was motivated by impressing others. But the answer now is pleasing God. Pleasing God, that's the motivation. Second, what is your standard for success? That's a great question. That's an important question. Nebuchadnezzar said, well, it's personal gain. But now the answer has become faithfulness to God. How do you spell success? Faithfulness to God. How do you define success? When I am being faithful to God in my life. Number three, what's your source of power? You know, when you're weak and you need help, who do you turn to? Who do you ask for help? Nebuchadnezzar said self-empowerment was my deal. But now the answer is dependence on God. Dependence on God. That's my source. I depend on God for my strength. And then finally, what is the purpose of your life? I mean, why are you here? I mean, you're sucking air and getting old just like everybody else. So what, what's your point? What's your purpose? Why are you here? Nebuchadnezzar said for personal happiness. But he's changed his tune now just as we should because it should all be about God's glory. That's my purpose, bringing glory to God. Now, let me tell you the, the biggest problem if you serve the God of me, you worship the God of me. This is the overriding, overarching biggest deal. This is the biggest serious problem if you, if you worship yourself. And that is you cannot save yourself. No matter how hard you try, no matter how, to, how, many, how much you accomplish, how many accolades, how, many, how much you pile up, of, of all the above. You can't earn enough. You can't be good enough. You can't accommodate enough the remission of your sins, the cleansing of your own soul, the preparation of your heart for an eternal existence with God. There's nothing you can do to get there to save yourself. And if you worship the God of me, you are in a hopeless, desperate position and because there's nothing you can do about it. You may be all that in all kinds of categories, but you can't save yourself. And it's the biggest problem. Now back to this spring of living water metaphor. Remember Jesus met this woman in Samaria, a woman at the well, and he asked her for a drink. Look at it. I'll put it on the screen with you. This is the last verse. We'll be done. John 4, 13 and 14. Jesus is with this woman. He asks her for a drink of water. And then they engage in conversation. And he says to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. The well water. But whoever drinks the water I give them, the well of living water, will never thirst. Isn't that powerful? Can you feel that? Can you see it? Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? Here's the wonderful invitation that God gives us. Drink from me and you will never thirst again. Wonderful, wonderful, thank you, thank you. Nebuchadnezzar got it. Maybe the most dramatic story in the whole Bible of someone who was completely full of themselves that God completely emptied of themselves so that they could turn to the one true God. Well, we have these choices, don't we? Which God are we gonna serve? Which God do we honor? 
Which God do we prefer? As in each of these messages over the course of these weeks, we've paused at the end to think about, to give an assessment, maybe to make some course corrections in our lives, to, to set aside the little gods, the lesser gods, so that we can focus our first love on Almighty God, the maker of heavens and earth, who is not me. He is great, and I am small. So let's pause and pray. Would you close your eyes with me just for a moment? As we've practiced in the past few weeks, let me ask you a couple of questions. What are you thirsty for today? Are you stressed out, thirsty for peace? Are you lonely, thirsty for love? Are you bored, thirsty for purpose? Are you thirsty for acceptance, for validation, for significance? Are you just thirsty for something more? Let me remind us this morning, the God of me relentlessly calls us to chase after all these things. But ultimately, just as Jesus taught the woman at the well, we're left more thirsty than ever. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. So here's the invitation from Jesus. Drink from me. You'll never thirst again. Drink from me. What motivates you? Pleasing God. What's your standard for success? Faithfulness to God. What's your source of power? Dependence on God. What's your purpose in life? Glory to God. Glory to God. So Jesus says, drink. Lord, give us the courage, the grace to recognize our need, to identify our thirst today, that we are truly indeed thirsty for you. So help us to partake from this spring of living water by saying yes to Jesus, making him first in our life, the center of all of our affections and our ultimate hope. Lord, bless your people today as we partake. In Jesus' holy name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand with us?